The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let me just mention a few items to you to see how they affect in your, your own heart. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, rising inflation, threat of global illness, your upcoming annual review, your children's health, your family's food, clothing, and housing needs, your latest lab results, the recent conflict you just had with your sister, your friend's cancer diagnosis, encroaching governmental restrictions on free speech speech and Christian ministry. These are all events, circumstances, and issues that cause anxiety. Are they not? And anxiety can easily easily infiltrate our minds and our hearts, can it? I think we all know that. What we may not consider is how easily our great enemy, Satan, can wield anxiety to his tactical advantage in our lives. How does he do that? Well, just consider for a moment. Anxiety hinders our effectiveness in our Christian life and in our ministry. It makes us spiritually weak and feeble. You know what I'm talking about. It causes us to be hesitant and fearful. When we are overcome with anxiety, we are tempted to neglect our responsibilities and leave off worship in other areas of obedience. Certainly we can relate to Proverbs 12.25, which says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Hopefully today will be a good word. So enjoying the peace of God, the titles of today's message and the theme of this passage, enjoying the peace of God is not only a blessing for us personally, it's also vital for our overall spiritual health in our walk with God and our ability to glorify Him in our lives. It's an important topic. Today we're going to equip ourselves with some spiritual disciplines that will actually enable us to enjoy the peace of God. Enjoying God's peace is not something passively. We just lay back on our beds and say, come on, God's peace, just waft over me. Like that sweet aroma of cookies coming out of the kitchen. That's not, what, that's not how it works. God's peace kind of wafting over us like a pleasant aroma. It requires us that we actually engage in some spiritual disciplines that God has laid out for us in His Word. But before we get into our passage and talk about the peace of God, we need to talk about, just for a moment, the peace that we have with God. We're not talking in this passage about peace with God. Peace with God is foundational to our experience of the peace of God. The peace that we have with God is that objective, immovable reality that we have peace with the living God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to our faith in the Lord Jesus, we were at war with God, and He was actually at war with us. Prior to coming to faith in Jesus, His wrath actually abided upon us because our sins had not been forgiven. But in Jesus, our sins are wiped away by His sufficient and complete death and work on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. So now, at this moment, if you have faith in Christ, you are at peace with God. You will never come in to His anger or wrath or condemnation. 
That peace with God is objective. It can't change. It can't be removed. It is forever and always. As long as Jesus is alive, you have peace with God. It can't be changed. But this peace that we're going to talk about today, this inner peace, this inner confident hope that we have in God, it must be grounded in this objective peace that we have with, uh, with God through Jesus Christ. We have peace with God because of Christ, and now we can experience the peace of God. That peace that Paul's talking about here in chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, is a confident hope that God will accomplish everything necessary for your good in the immediate and distant future. Say that again. The peace that Paul is talking about in Philippians 4, 7 and 4, 9, is the confident hope that God will accomplish everything necessary for your good in the immediate and distant future. It's the hope that things will go well for you. It's, a sub- it's subjective because it's something that we are to constantly seek and because it's something that will ebb and flow in our lives. And this peace is only possible because we have the peace with God that cannot change. You can't experience a subjective peace of God unless you have been made right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and now have peace with God. So in today's passage, we're going to dig deeply into the mind of God's word in order to gather some resources that will help us in our pursuit of this supernatural peace of God. Paul is going to give us five spiritual practices or disciplines that will actually enable us to experience this peace on a consistent basis. And each of these practices that we will mention from Scripture are essential. You can't take one and leave out the other. Sometimes I think we we kind of take verse 6 out of the context. It says, Do not be anxious for anything. We like that. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we, we pull that out of the context And we forget that there's a surrounding context that's actually connected to other vital spiritual disciplines that we need to implement. And if which we don't, we won't experience the fullness of God's peace in our life. Something that I think we all desperately need. Just turn on the news. Or don't turn on the news. Actually, that will be an application later today. (laughs) This, the way... Paul frames this passage in the way he frames it around this theme of peace in verse 6 and then again in verse 9. He says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God or the God of peace being with you. Really just two different ways of saying the same thing. This experience of peace, the theme of this passage is tied into the practice of other spiritual disciplines than just praying. As we'll see. So today we are going to Consider five essential spiritual disciplines that will enable us to experience the peace of God on a consistent basis. The first one is clear. You can see it right there in the text. If you even put it in your outline, is just just the wording as it stands. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's the first spiritual practice that we're called to if we want to experience the peace of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. This is an active rejoicing in the Lord. Notice that it doesn't say have joy in the Lord, but an active rejoicing that involves the mind and the heart and the will. Paul instructs us to maintain a consistent cadence in our life of rejoicing in the Lord. And he's given us the basis for that rejoicing already in the book of Philippians. 
See, we have a Lord who can be rejoiced over. We have a Lord who has done something for us that can be rejoiced over. We have a Lord who in and of himself is worthy of all rejoicing. And Paul says that it's essential to our peace. And he gives us the grounds for it even earlier in the passage or in the book. He says that in verse 8 he says of chapter 3, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There is nothing more valuable than the Lord Jesus Christ in this universe. And, and Paul has Jesus. So, and he has Jesus, and so he counts everything else that he might have as, as worse than rubbish, worse than garbage, even excrement, so that he might have Christ. Why? Because in Christ, verse 9, he has a righteousness that is not his own. See, Paul knew himself to be condemned, even though he was the most uh, pharisaical of the Pharisees, the most strict of all the Pharisees. If you wanted to put anything alongside Paul in terms of religious accomplishment, he would take you out every time. It's no contest. And yet he knew that he stood condemned before a holy God without any righteousness of his own. But in Christ, he has full and complete and total righteousness so that he stands right with God so that Jesus is utterly precious to him. Verse 9, he, is found, he desires to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, as though you could do that and keep that up, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you have this Lord who's provided you with all righteousness that you don't have, and you don't need to work for it. You believe in him, and it is credited to you. But not only that, but you have resurrection in Jesus Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible I might attain from the resurrection of the dead. You have a resurrection to look for. You have a Lord who was raised from the dead. And if you've been raised with him, you will dwell with him for all eternity. Death does not have the final say in your life. So you have resurrection to look forward to. And this resurrection and this righteousness is ultimately because of what Christ has done for us, not because of what we've done. Paul says in verse 12, I press on to make it my own, namely that perfection that comes with the resurrection. Paul is straining towards with great passion that, that hope of resurrection that he has. He says he's pressing on to make it his own because Christ has made me his own. It was Christ who reached down and grabbed a hold of Paul, not the other way around. And so he has a Savior that he can rejoice in. We have a Savior we can rejoice in. Paul had said in uh, Philippians chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We can rejoice in the Lord always. And that is the command that Paul gives us, the first discipline that we are to implement in our life if we're going to experience the peace of God. And I think you can already begin to see how rejoicing in the Lord is essential for us enjoying the peace of God because that rejoicing sets our minds upon the Lord, upon his goodness, upon our future state that we will get to enjoy, upon our right standing with him, his beauty, his glory, his wonder. And, and slowly but surely your anxiety begins to fade into the glory of Jesus as you behold him as your sufficient savior. So we must rejoice in the Lord always. And this is a discipline because it is not always easy. It's something that requires effort and intentionality to actually do. In fact, you might come to church on a Sunday morning, and you may not feel like rejoicing in the Lord, depending on your week. Maybe it was a horrible week. And sometimes what you need to do is you need to, though you don't feel like it, 
you just had a hard week, is you need to fix your eyes on the, the words, fix your heart on the, the, the truths of the songs, and worship the Lord. And you know what happens often? Is you are brought out of the doldrums of your, your past week, and you are able enabled to behold the glory of the Lord and given great joy. But it is sometimes it sometimes requires real effort. And you have to place yourself in that the, the way of encouragement. And you have to bring yourself to rejoice in the Lord. It takes effort. This is not passive. And I think that's where a lot of us get this enjoying God's peace wrong. Is we think it's just something passive. We just let go and let God. That's really bad advice. We are to actively rejoice in the Lord. And that is one of the means that we can gain and uh, enjoy God's peace. So that's the first thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's how important it is. Rejoice even when you don't feel like rejoicing. And the Spirit uses that to encourage and bring you out of a state of despair. Fix your eyes on the Lord, who He is and what He has done and what you will someday attain to in that resurrection. But another important piece that we may forget about is verse 5. Practice public gentleness. That's the next spiritual discipline. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's why I say public because he's not limiting it to anyone. You are to, to practice your gentleness to, with everyone. And now that word reasonableness is how the ESV translates it. I think it's probably better gentleness. And the reason for that is because that's the way it's translated throughout the rest of the New Testament, that particular word. What is Paul's calling us here is to practice gentleness with everybody. He is instructing us to consistently conduct ourselves with others in a way that is not angry or aggressive or pushy or constantly aiming to get one's way. To let our gentleness be known to all is to not allow bitterness or a vengeful attitude to flavor our interactions with others. Gentleness is characterized by patience, compassion, and an unwillingness to return evil for evil. Now, Christian gentleness is always convictional. We don't compromise on the truth, but we are patient with people. So a large part of this will be coming to learn how to speak the truth in love. But just, you can probably already see it if you're following with me. You can already start to see why something like this is practicing gentleness with people, with all people, is essential for experiencing the peace of God. It will be hard for you to enjoy the peace of God when you're, and to rest in God when your mind and heart are full of aggression and anger towards others. How we treat others does have direct impact on our walk with the Lord. I mentioned this last week. I'm not sure we fully grasp that. We think that we can go on just with any way, any, any way we want to with other people, but still have a, a good and wholesome relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. And if you think you can maintain that kind of aggressive, angry attitude towards people and, and withhold forgiveness from others and be unwilling to forgive and yet have a, a happy and joyful and, and fervent relationship with the Lord, I'm afraid you're deceiving yourself. And your relationship with the Lord is probably not as good and as fervent as you think it is. Why? 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. 
You cannot be someone who's constantly angry at others and stores up bitterness towards friends and family or colleagues and think you can also enjoy the supernatural peace of God. Your conscience will be constantly defiled and burdened by your sinful anger and bitterness in your heart and your heart won't be rightly prepared to enjoy the peace of God. Only a gentle spirit is a peaceful spirit. Only a gentle spirit is a peaceful spirit. Is your life racked with anxiety? Consider your gentleness. Are you letting your gentleness be known to all people? Are you practicing public gentleness? All right, the third discipline, and one that we know the best probably, is verse 6. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. We are to let our gentleness be known to everyone, but we are also to resist anxiety through thankful prayer. That's the third tool in our toolbox here, the third discipline. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known known to God. Before we can talk about resisting anxiety, however, we have to first define it. And I found it surprising to me this week as I searched through various uh, sites of uh, places that, that deal with mental health, organizations that deal with mental health, I could not find for the life of me any clear definition of what anxiety actually is. It was always defined by its symptoms and what it causes in your life, but never what it is. I found that to be interesting. The American Psychological Association uh, defines anxiety like this. Anxiety is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. People with anxiety disorders usually have reoccurring intrusive thoughts or concerns. And you're like, yeah, that's what's happening. What is it? And here, the, using the word worried is you're kind of violating the whole rule you learned in uh, fifth grade about not using the same word to define the word, but... The Mayo Clinic says, quote, experiencing occasional anxiety is a normal part of life. However, people with anxiety disorders frequently have intense, excessive, and persistent worry and fear about everyday situations. Right. That's, that's what I'm inquiring about. I need to know what it is. National Institute of Mental Health, quote, people with generalized anxiety disorder display excessive anxiety or worry most days for at least six months, and a number of things such, uh, of such things as personal work social interactions and everyday routine and life circumstances, or I should say they experience the anxiety about those things. The fear and anxiety can cause significant problems in areas of their life, such as social interactions, school, and work. And you're like, I agree. That's, that's why I'm looking for help. I don't, I don't debate that. that. That's what I'm experiencing. The, the closest I got to an actual definition of anxiety was from the American Psychiatric Association. Quote, anxiety refers to anticipation of a future concern. There it is. Anxiety refers to an anticipation of a future concern and is more associated with much muscle tension and avoidance behavior. Anxiety disorders can cause people to avoid situations that trigger or worsen their symptoms. Job performance, schoolwork, and personal relationships can be affected. So there I get the closest, I think, to an actual definition. Anxiety refers to an anticipation of a future concern, but we can't stop there. Let's define it biblically. Now, this is vital 
And, and I'm preaching to myself here because I used to get this dead wrong. And I think it was very unhelpful for the people that I counseled up until learning this. But we need to define anxiety biblically and carefully because there is such a thing in the Bible, believe it or not, as good anxiety. Did you know that? If, if you've been flatly told that anxiety is sinful, full stop, you haven't been given the full story. And I used to, I used to teach that. I used to believe that. All anxiety is sinful. No, it's not. <laughs> not according to the Scripture. There is sinful anxiety, but there is also godly anxiety in the Bible. Did you know that? Can you believe that? Can we say that? Yes, we can. We just did. <laughs> Legitimate anxiety is usually godly concern over someone else's spiritual or temporal welfare. And it's something that actually you find in Scripture. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-34, you can have good anxiety over caring for your wife and family. Paul recognizes that, and he, he recognizes that as uh, one reason why he is commending singleness because of the anxieties that attend marriage, but those anxieties are actually good anxieties because you're caring for someone in your life. You can have genuine concern over other believers in the body of Christ. Now, this is, in, this is very interesting. The same word that Paul uses for anxiety in uh, chapter 4, verse 6, is the same one that he uses in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, and he uses it this way. Listen. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care, that's the word for anxiety, for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This kind of anxiety grows out of, heart, uh, of a heart of genuine love and concern for others, to have concern over the welfare of others in the, in the body, even a concern that keeps you up at night. <clears throat> Praying for them, thinking about them, is a good and godly kind of anxiety. Paul laid the anxiety that he had for all the churches in, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. 28. He laid aside, laid aside that same anxiety alongside all of the other things that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. Shipwrecks, beatings, and oh, by the way, I also suffer anxiety for the churches. Why? Because he cared for the people. And when you care for the people, you might have some godly anxiety over them. There's also a legitimate kind of concern that we should have over the future. Proverbs 22.3, quote, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. There is a certain amount of anxiety, we might say, that is appropriate and helps us make wise decisions about possible future circumstances. So we, we have to get that clear and if you have been under my counsel and I've suggested to you that all anxiety is sinful, well, I'm sorry. I've changed my ways now in, in light of Scripture. But I think some of us probably have that belief implicitly. But we need to see from Scripture that it's not the case. But there is also sinful anxiety, and Scripture also addresses this as well. And we actually saw it a few weeks ago when Cliff preached through that section in Luke where Martha and Mary are together and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is, is serving and she is anxious, it says. And her anxiety actually caused her to sin in that moment. Martha started with a good concern over taking care of her guest, namely Jesus, but it morphed into a sinful anxiety to the point where she began to sin with her words and her heart attitude. There's a kind of anxiety that can lead us to neglect the kingdom of God and become consumed with our circumstances and our needs and the future 
And Jesus helps us fight this kind of anxiety, particularly in Matthew chapter 6, by reminding us how abundantly the Lord provides for his people. So, so sinful anxiety, this is how I would define sinful anxiety. Sinful anxiety is an inner fear that something in our immediate or distant future will not go well for you or for someone you care about. That, don't stop there, that causes you to sin in other areas of your life, neglect your responsibilities, and become careless in your obedience to God. You know that it's morphed into sinful anxiety when it begins to feather out into other areas of your life and affect your walk with the Lord and your obedience to Him. Sinful anxiety is characterized by excessive fear that disables you from worship, keeps you from obedience, robs your joy, and increases your temptation to sin in other areas of your life. We see Martha as an excellent example. What began as a good kind of anxiety morphed into a sinful anxiety, and she's sinning with her words and with her heart attitude. Jesus, tell Mary to get in here and help me out. Sinful anxiety often causes people to become easily angry or annoyed or depressed. And the depression often becomes, or happens because the anxiety has disabled the person from attending to their normal responsibilities. The anxiety has so consumed them that now they can't uh, uh, attend to their normal everyday routine and responsibilities at work or at home. And because of that, they further neglect those responsibilities. And the more they neglect them, the more they don't want to go back to them and do them. And the more you neglect them, the more depressed you become. So anxiety actually, this simple anxiety actually can really wreak havoc on your life and be the, the root cause of other sins in your life. So Paul is giving us exceedingly gracious counsel here, isn't he? By saying, do not be anxious about anything. Wouldn't you love to not be anxious about anything. He doesn't mean to become indifferent to those who are suffering or the potential harm that could come your way. Rather, he's exhorting us to take deliberate action to fend off the encroachment of sinful anxiety, anxiety that overwhelms us. And how do we do that? Well, we've already noted that part of it is going to be rejoicing in the Lord Implementing that spiritual discipline, rejoicing in the Lord, letting our gentleness be known to God. But here, he is going to actually take us directly into the throne room and say, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is a call for genuine, intentional prayer and earnest requests. There may not be a whole lot of difference in terms of definition or meaning between prayer and supplication. Paul's main point simply seems to be that earnest prayer is the appropriate first response of a heart that is feeling the weight of anxiety. Do you see what he says? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer. The first impulse of the heart is to be prayer when you are sensing that weight of anxiety. And thankfulness is vital here. It's not just Request. It is also attended by thankfulness. Why is that essential? Because anxiety grows where God's providential kindness is not clearly seen. Let me say that again. Anxiety grows where God's providential kindness is not clearly seen. And you begin to more clearly see it when you thank God for what he has done in your life. 
But if we have neglected to be thankful to the Lord, then we forget all that he has done. This was the problem with Israel. They just were forgetting all that he had done, and they would fall into complaining and bitterness and unbelief. But when we go to the Lord and we are thankful to him for the, his amazing kindness in our lives and the myriad of ways that he takes care of us, we find that this practice begins to powerfully dispel our anxiety. Notice that Paul plainly tells us to let our requests be made known to God. Anxiety also grows when we lose sight of God's care for us. God cares for us holistically. He cares for us spiritually and he cares for our temporal situation, meeting our spiritual and temporal needs. And God is the only being in the universe who has infinite resources at his disposal to help you and to help me. He's ultimately the only one who can help us. And I think Paul desires for us to make prayer the first impulse of our heart when concerns start to arise in our lives. The immediate turn of the heart when confronted with problems and troubles that tempt us, is to, that tempt us to fall into overwhelming pride is to come to God with thankful prayer. But again, I want us to look at this word request. Let your requests be made known to God. This just blew me away recently. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, let your anxieties be made known to God. It says, let your requests be made known to God. Why? You're anxious about an upcoming doctor's appointment and a negative test result. Paul doesn't say, let the Lord know that you're anxious about it. Like, Lord, I'm so anxious about this test result. Um, Help me to not be anxious. Paul tells you, To tell God your request. You have a request, don't you? You have a request. That's why there's anxiety. You have a request, so make that request known to God. Father, my request is that my test results will be good. And if they're not, my request is that my disease will be treatable. And that you will help me glorify you through the whole process. You have a request. Make the request. That is the kindness of the Lord. It's not merely telling God, oh, I'm I'm anxious. Make the request. You're anxious about your son driving himself to college for the first time in the fall. You've made all the necessary provisions. You've been wise. You've checked the engine and the tires. You've laid out the roadmap. You've got him the cell phone. But you're anxious about the actual drive. Why? Because you want your son to make it safely to college. Make the request. Father, please protect my son in his drive to college. So what does Paul say when we practice rejoicing in the Lord, practicing gentleness with all, bringing our request to the Lord with thankful prayer? What does he say will happen? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These disciplines are God's means They're not to be detached from the means that God uses. This peace is purely a gift from God. But God brings it about through means. The means of rejoicing in the Lord, the means of gentleness, and the means of thankful prayer. And he will bring us into a supernatural peace that is deeper, more powerful, and more enduring than the world can ever manufacture. Though it constantly tries to. Even in the midst of great trial... Believers can experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. 
Paul's not suggesting that this surpassing all understanding kind of peace is irrational. It's totally rational. It's, it's grounded in the, the verbal word of God, in the promises of God. The mind and the heart are fully engaged. But it is more than merely rational. It is a supernatural sense that your heavenly Father is in full control of all things. He is good. He is kind and will do all that is necessary for your good. Even when circumstances are screaming at you otherwise. It is a supernatural clarity of mind and trust in the heart that your heavenly Father has everything under control. No matter how it looks like in your life. It's not indifference. It's not indifference towards your circumstances or indifference towards other people who are suffering. It's an inner sense that our Heavenly Father is trustworthy to do good to us, even if it involves some kind of suffering in our life. Every moment we experience is under the sovereign hand of God. The peace that surpasses all understanding is a supernatural sense that God is good and fully in control. He has infinite wisdom to work out everything according to his good purposes. My mind is settled. My heart is calm. My final destiny, my final destiny, destiny is a place where I will experience no more anxiety. But we don't stop there. In fact, to stop there would actually hinder our enjoyment of the peace of God. Remember, the theme of the peace of God is a theme that goes throughout the entire passage, verses 4 through 9. We're not intended to stop with verse 7. Paul says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard of me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the fourth discipline that we must implement is dwelling on good things. Dwelling on good things. Why would this be essential for enjoying the peace of God? Because our consciences will be defiled and our hearts and minds will, uh, when our hearts and minds dabble in unwholesome things. A defiled conscience is a troubled conscience. A defiled conscience is a troubled conscience. A troubled conscience is a conscience that cannot enjoy the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. A defiled conscience is a troubled conscience. A defiled conscience is an anxious conscience. As we see here in this passage, however, Paul doesn't allow us to separate what we've just said with what we're doing here. It's essential for us and for our peace with God, I'm sorry, the, the enjoyment of the peace of God to dwell on good things. The first thing that we see is that we must dwell on what is true. Because we won't enjoy the peace of God if we dwell on falsehood. Or if our minds are constantly speculating about the future based on spotty or unreliable information or evidence. This word here, when he says whatever is true, this word literally means in accordance with the facts. It's not just talking about dwelling on scripture. It's talking about how we think about everything. You are to dwell on what is true or in accordance with the facts. You and I will not enjoy the peace of God if we speculate about a particular problem or future event. We can become anxious because we start dwelling on what someone might say or what might happen. 
That's not fixing our minds on what is true. We get swept up with anxiety over news reports and headlines over things we haven't even taken the time to confirm. And this robs us of peace. Dwelling on what other people say on social media can rob us of peace because so much of it is curated and doesn't reflect what is actually going on in a person's life. It causes you to become anxious and envious. We're not dwelling on what is true. Paul tells us that we can't dwell on that which is speculative, conjectural, unfounded, even theoretical, and expect to experience the peace of God. We are to dwell on whatever is true. And quite honestly, this is a very difficult discipline to implement. We need the grace of God. To, this, is just, this doesn't come natural to us. It is very easy to speculate to let the mind spin out of control, speculating about things that we're not even sure about. So we need to rein the mind in and think on what is true. This is essential to experiencing the peace of God. We're to dwell on whatever is honorable. So dwelling on what is true is essential, but that's not all. We must dwell on what is honorable, because you could dwell on true things that are defiling or gross or inappropriate. So we must dwell on things that are honorable, This word refers to things that provoke awe or reverence. The most honorable thing that we know of that we can dwell on is the word of God, dwelling on God and his word. But the command to dwell on what is is honorable here doesn't only include things that are strictly biblical. There are things that will coincide with biblical truth and biblical principles. There are people, both believers and unbelievers, stories, songs, Movies, Christian movies, and those of which are not explicitly Christian, experiences, conversations, news events that are honorable, dignified, and ennobling that are outside the Bible. And we're able to discern their goodness and their honorableness because our minds are being renewed by the Word of God. A mind at peace will be a mind that dwells on that which is honorable, not that which is defiling. A mind... Will, that is, enjoying the peace of God will also be a mind that dwells on whatever is pure. This refers to moral and ethical purity. Dwelling on that which is sexually immoral or unclean will only defile the conscience and, and the mind and disrupt our enjoyment of God's peace. We can't expect to enjoy the peace of God while filling our minds with that which is filthy. But we're also to dwell on whatever is lovely. This is a very pleasant and interesting word here. For the regenerate mind, there are a thousand lovely aspects of our existence that we can dwell on, even in a world that is racked by sin and under the curse. A thousand good things, lovely things to dwell on. The wonder and joy of little children. The beauty of a godly Christian marriage. Examples of it in our church. The glory of a fall sunset. The green hills in the East Bay during the winter and spring. Get it while it's hot because it's going to fade away right around May. A mind that enjoys the peace of God is that which is disciplined to dwell on whatever is lovely. We want our minds to be so trained by God's Spirit and uh, God's Word that we're able to look out in the world and have our minds captured by that which is truly lovely. And the mind that is regularly dwelling on those lovely things will be a mind at 
peace. And then finally, whatever is commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. I group those things together because they, I think they belong together. What I thought about here was stories of courage as an example. There are examples of courage and faithfulness and kindness that abound in, in, in this world that we can recognize and dwell on. I typically think of the courageous stories that you might find in, in military books that I, I enjoy reading. I enjoy reading books on the military, books on uh, Navy SEALs, and you'll find great stories of courage in those books. And they, they're encouraging. And I can recognize the goodness of the, 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 the act of giving your life in defense of someone who is weaker or the act of going out and defending your, your uh, compatriots and, and defending your country and things like that. I can, I can recognize those things because my mind has been renewed by the Word of God and I can see that which is truly commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise in this world. And these are the things we are to dwell in and, and build ourselves up with, along with the Word of God. In fact, we're not able to build ourselves up with these things apart from the Word of God. Paul says in Romans 12, 9, referring to the whole of the Christian life, abhor what is evil. He doesn't stop there. Then he says, cling to what is good. Cling to what is good. Now, I don't want to leave this bit of instruction in the abstract. This has everything to do with what we listen to on our drive to work, what we listen to while we're working, what we listen to while we're driving home from work, while we're working out. It has everything to do with what we read, a heart stuffed with the latest celebrity gossip or scintillating romance novel will have a difficult time dwelling on what is good. And it won't be a mind that is at peace. It has everything to do with what you fill your eyes and ears on on Netflix or Hulu or Peacock or YouTube or HBO. Can anything good come out of HBO? I'm not sure. How can you expect to maintain a good conscience and dwell on good things when you place yourself in front of a 90-minute movie that flaunts immorality, gratuitous violence, and filthy language? Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians shouldn't watch movies. Our family does. We do. We watch movies. But we're careful about what we watch because we want minds that are filled with good things so that we, our minds can dwell on good things so our minds can be at peace. You won't be at peace if you're filling your mind with filth. It's axiomatic. It can't happen. Paul's instruction here requires that we take very practical steps to do what is most conducive to dwelling on what is good because taking steps to do what is most conducive to dwelling on what is good will lead us to peace that we can enjoy from God. It will likely mean limiting our intake of the news and social media. I think we have to discipline ourselves in our information intake. Be careful. It will mean carefully choosing what you read and what you will watch. It will mean taking positive steps to fill your life with good music, good teaching, honorable and excellent entertainment. Finally, we are to follow the apostolic word and example. In order to experience the peace of God, we are to follow the apostolic word and example. What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. A first importance that they would have received from Paul is the gospel. A mind and a heart at peace is a mind and a heart that is resting in the good news of Jesus Christ continually. It's why you'll hear me always reminding us of the gospel every time I get up here. We need to be constantly reminded of the gospel, the things of first importance that Paul brought to the Philippians and he brought to every other church. But it also 
has to do with the entailments of the gospel, what we're given in New Testament instructions, and as Paul says, in the examples of others, in him and by extension, others in the church. We need godly example alongside of biblical instruction. It's, it's so helpful to see the Christian life lived out by people that I can, I can see, I can walk next to them, I can talk to them, I can hear from them. We need that godly example. Enjoying the supernatural peace of God and effectively overcoming anxiety cannot happen in the life of a professing Christian who is not immersing themselves in the apostolic gospel and walking in accordance with it. That's why each of these is essential. We can't leave one of them out. Paul knows that walking in accordance with the gospel is so helped by example. So let's end this with a a few practical questions. Let me ask you, who are you surrounding yourself with? Are you surrounding yourself with those who will build you up in the faith, rebuke you when you're in sin, who will encourage you to rejoice in the Lord, who encourage you and even admonish you when you're not practicing gentleness, who will know how to dig into your own life and ask you the right questions, even the questions you don't really want to hear at that moment, but will enable you to experience the peace of God? Are they brothers and sisters who are helping you pursue Christian maturity, who will encourage you with the gospel and correct you when you start to stray? Is that who you're surrounding yourself with? Because it should start to become clear at this point that enjoying the peace of God and doing battle against anxiety is nigh impossible apart from the local church. And that's God's design. The practices that Paul lays out in verses 4 through 9, the practices that will lead to you enjoying the peace of God, cannot flourish without the support and godly examples of your brothers and sisters in the local church. If you are away from fellowship or hopping from church to church, you probably won't be able to enjoy the peace that surpasses surpasses all understanding, at least for not very long. If you're away from the church, away from fellowship, if you're hopping from place to place, I bet you're probably an anxious person. That's what I would guess. But when we, by God's grace, rejoice in the Lord, practice gentleness, make thankful requests to God and dwell on good things and walk in accordance with the gospel and godly example, God will bless us with the supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding, far more than the world could ever offer. The peace that only comes from knowing that our Father is in full control of all things, that He loves us, He hears us, and He is working everything out for His glory and our good. Let's pray to Him together. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise for all that you have done for us individually in our lives, the incredible ways you provide and care and protect us. And then we thank you all the amazing things that you've done at this church and providing and protecting this church, how you've knitted our hearts together in love and, and you protected our unity even at a time when churches were being utterly ripped to shreds because of their disunity. You have protected this church. You have been so good to us. So God, we may have fear about the future of this church, but we reflect upon all the good things that you have done, and we ask you with grateful hearts, would you continue to protect and provide for this church, build up its members, help us to fight anxiety with these spiritual disciplines, to encourage one another, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.